as a uh, as a person who did much of his growing up uh, as a child in the 1990s. Um, I was fortunate uh, to be coming of age at really the the perfect time when it comes to classic Disney movies. I don't know if you're a Disney movie fan or not, but uh, if you were to look back at the, the uh, record of Disney movie releases, there was a span of about five years in the early 90s where Disney just hit home run after home run when it comes to animated films that they released. So for example, in, in 1989, the Little Mermaid was released. I think we'd probably consider that to be a, a classic Disney film. In 1991, uh, Beauty and the Beast came out. 1992 was Aladdin. 1994, it was The Lion King. I mean, that, that is a stretch of movies right there that, that's pretty good when it comes to, well, money that Disney would have made, but, but just films that have kind of lived on, you know, and there's been musicals that have come about and, and things like that. that. That's just a good stretch of movies. If you would have asked me as a child which one of those was my favorite, um, I, I would have quickly said Aladdin. Um, I, I, it had a little more action, I think, than the other three. Uh, uh, for a young boy, it just, I don't know, it's probably just maybe natural to, to gravitate towards, uh, towards the Aladdin movie. Um, if, uh, you've probably seen the movie before, but in the, in the original film, uh, there are two instances where Aladdin asks Princess Jasmine a question. And uh, we've got a graphic here. Jacob, if you can go ahead and put that graphic up, just to kind of help maybe uh, uh, jog your memory a bit. In the first situation in that movie, uh, um, the royal guards are chasing Aladdin and Princess Jasmine, and, and they have them cornered on the top floor of a building. And so... Aladdin kind of jumps up on the ledge, he looks around, surveys the situation, decides jumping is the best measure. He doesn't say that to Jasmine, but he, you know, he decides it, and he asks Jasmine, do you trust me? And then the second part of uh, that movie, later on, Aladdin is disguised as a prince, and he wanted to impress Jasmine by taking her on a ride on his magical flying carpet, and when Jasmine shows some hesitation about that, again, Aladdin reaches out his hand and asks, do you trust me? Do you trust me? What a loaded question that is, right? Do you trust me? In many ways, I would say that this is the very question that is being asked of us on a regular basis, not by Aladdin, but by God himself, that he is asking us that question over and over. Do you trust me? Do we trust him? I would love to say that for all of us and for all of mankind, that the answer is always an easy yes. I would love to stand up here and say that. Um, but that's not always the case, is it? And, and even for those of us who, who know God, it can prove difficult to consistently trust in him. There's, there's other things that come along in our life. And, and if we aren't careful, we, we can find ourselves either knowingly or unknowingly 
trusting in those things, shifting our trust away from God and to those other things or those other people. So today, as we uh, continue this journey through the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at five different woe or ah statements in Isaiah chapters uh, 28 through 35. And in each one of these passages, it's going to show the, the peril of trusting in something or someone else as opposed to trusting in God. Now, now, before we jump into each one of these, in most translations, you see the word woe. The, the word is translated as woe. So woe to Ephraim, woe to Ariel, woe uh, stubborn children. But in the English Standard Version, which, which I'll be reading from, each section starts with that Hebrew word being translated as ah, ah. You know, it, it's almost as if God, through Isaiah, is sighing when he thinks about what lies ahead for those who trust in all these other things. So, ah, you who trust in pride. Ah, you who trust in appearances. It's just kind of interesting how the ESV maybe brings out that, that other side of God's emotion, if you will. It's not just, woe, hardship is coming, but it's, uh, hardship is coming. Those of you who trust in other things. And so I think you'll see what we mean as we go through this, because God knows that there's such a better option for his people than to trust in these things that, that he's going to bring up through the prophet Isaiah. So let's look at this. I, I would encourage you to turn with me to chapter 28 of Isaiah. This is where we see the first woe or the first ah uh, statement. And this is uh, starting in verse 1, chapter 28, verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is, as it is in his hand. Now you can, you can hear in these verses that, that uh, Ephraim, referencing northern Israel, that they thought very highly of themselves. Uh, these verses reference drunkenness as well, and, and I have no doubt that literal drunkenness is, is a problem and one of the things being addressed here. But I also think it's meant to be communicated that the people were also drunk in their pride. That comes out very clearly in this passage. In their pride, they felt invincible. They felt uh, they, were, they were probably unreasonable. Maybe two common characteristics that you could say about someone drunk with alcohol. Also being drunk with pride can lead to that. And, and in addition, if you look in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 28, th this is Isaiah quoting the people. So he's quoting the people of Ephraim here. It says, To whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, 
For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Uh, The people of northern Israel, they, they were so proud that when they received a message of truth from God, that was delivered through the prophet, they they scoffed at the message. They scoffed at it. They assumed it was a message more for simple children. They they, they probably felt superior to the message that was being delivered to them. Well, God goes on in verse 11 to say, okay, if you're not going to accept my message through my prophet, then uh, how about from the lips of foreigners? And uh, when God makes that statement, he's not referencing a peaceful diplomatic conversation with foreigners. He's, he's talking about this message is going to come from foreigners and it's going to be through an attack. You're going to be attacked by foreigners. Maybe that will get the message across. You can see that the pride of, of northern Israel here is closing them off to God's truth. And, because, and I think that is what makes pride such a dangerous, dangerous thing. Not only does it blind us at times to our own shortcomings, but but it can also blind us to the truth when it is presented to us. And so, you know, as we think about this, a good thing for us as we reflect, if, if we find ourselves disregarding truth from God because we don't think it applies to us, we don't, we, or maybe we think we know better, there's a decent chance that our trust is lying in our own pride rather than in God. We ought to examine ourselves and see if, if that might be a problem in our lives. And better yet, especially because pride can, as I said, blind us to the truth, we might be better off asking someone who knows us well if they see pride as an issue anywhere in our lives. Because it might be there and in our pride, we just may not see it. So to ask somebody else, pride an issue for me? Do you, do, do you, see, do you see me being prideful in any way that's, that's going to close me off to what God has for me, God's truth being spoken into my life? Because whatever trust we place in our pride, it, it is going to fail us. It will, and we'll see the ultimate result when we get to the end this morning. We're going to talk about a few different things and then wrap it all up with the ultimate result of these things. So that is, is woe to those trusting in pride. The next one is appearance. Look at chapter 29, verse 1, the next ah statement. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Now, now the name Ariel is... is in verse 1 there, it, it's a symbolic name for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, of course, the city where the temple uh, was. It was the center of the sacrificial system that had been instituted by God. Jerusalem was the location to which everyone traveled three times a year in order to observe the, the feasts, the feasts of unleavened bread and weeks and booths. Three times a year, God's people were supposed to come to Jerusalem and worship him there. But what God told the people of Jerusalem in this chapter was that all this outward praise and worship that was taking place, it was nothing but empty lip service. Look at verse uh, 13, chapter 29, verse 13. The Lord said... Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So their lips spoke words of praise, but their hearts were far from God. Uh, the, the commandments and rituals that they followed were nothing more than empty rituals that they were taught to obey. Um, they trusted in their outward appearance, their outward appearance of righteousness, their outward appearance of holiness. That's where their trust lied. And, and that can creep into our hearts today, right? Maybe we're not going to, well, we're not going to Jerusalem three times a year, but, but that can creep into our lives. We can sometimes place our trust in the fact that we attend church regularly or that uh, we serve in a specific ministry or that we follow certain rules. You know, we, we can begin to place our trust in how we appear on the outside to those around us. But again, we're going to see the ultimate result of that as we get to the end this morning, if we place our trust in appearances of some kind. So let's continue through these. The next one, the next woe ah statement is given in verse 15 of chapter 29. 29.15 says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed of him, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So, so in addition to looking good on the outside, the people of Jerusalem also assumed that if they kept their evil deeds inside, kept them hidden away in secret, there wouldn't be any consequences for them. They thought that they could do that. There's something just innate within us, even from a young age, that leads us to think this way, isn't there? I mean, we see it in young children. How many, how many times do young kids assume that if they can just hide their evidence, sometimes just behind their back can hide it, that there won't be any consequences, right? I mean, it's, it's just something about us. But we can't just point the finger at children. I mean, I, we as adults can do that same kind of thing. Now, now uh, the deeds we're trying to hide are typically bigger, and the, the hiding of them has to be much more elaborate, but it still goes back to the very same thing thinking that we can hide that stuff within and that God won't know about it. You know, we can try to trust that our deeds are, are hidden in the dark corners of our lives. But who are we to think that we can hide something from God? I mean, who are we to think that God doesn't have access to those corners of our lives, whatever they are? And, and Isaiah says in verse 16, that, that's just, that's, that's turning things upside down. That, that's, that's like trying to pretend that the potter is on the same level as the clay. That's ridiculous. It's not true. It's, it's, it's the same as the creation being on the same level as the creator. It's, it's the same thing as, as, as something being formed, having a greater understanding than the one who formed it. it, it it's upside down. That's what Isaiah says. That's like turning things upside down. And yet there's something inside of us that tempts us to trust in our own ability to, to hide things in the dark. And, and so again, we're, we're, 
we're going to see the ultimate result of this as we get to chapters 34 and 35 this morning. So continuing on, we've got a couple more, a couple more things that God highlights. Chapter 30, verse 1. He says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. And then look at chapter 31 as well, verse one. He says the same thing again. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. They will perish together. So, ah, those who place their trust in others. That's what God is saying there. For God's people at that point in history, their trust was, was in Egypt. Um, Assyria was, was threatening them, so they thought their best course of action was to bribe the Egyptians and, and create an alliance together. Um, and the problem, as, as uh, Isaiah stated in chapter 30, verse 1, that was not God's plan. Uh, they did not consult God before creating that alliance. What often ended up happening in those situations was that the, the nations didn't just join forces militarily. They regularly joined together in commerce and religious rituals as well. And, and oftentimes family members of each ruling families that somebody from each would marry one another and they would be joined together in that way through marriage, this further sign of alliance. And again and again in the Old Testament, we see recorded that God's people were led astray because of those kinds of alliances. Those, those alliances provided an open door for idol worship to, to creep into the nation. But even if that wasn't the case, even if idol worship didn't come in through that open door, are the Egyptians really more trustworthy than God himself? I, I mean, Isaiah says in chapter 31, they are man, not God. Their, their horses are flesh, not spirit. Uh, it's like God's saying, you know, uh, why? why? Why would you turn to them instead of turn to me? And, uh, you know, as we look at ourselves, you and I probably aren't making military alliances with people in our lives. I'm just saying that's probably not a road we go down. But it does not mean that when it comes to, to office politics or, or family disputes or, or neighborhood quarrels or, or, or just uh, politics in general, that we aren't seeking protection and safety through alliances. Uh, do we seek to solve our problems by getting the right people on our side or getting the right people who are on our side in the right positions of power around us? Yeah, in addition to that, a question we can ask is, are, are, 
Are we looking to others in our lives to provide something that only God can truly and fully give to us? Trusting in others. Uh, Again, we'll, we'll see the ultimate result of that as we get to the end this morning. The last one, this next passage, this one is spoken about the people attacking God's people. This is spoken about Assyria here. So chapter 33, verse 1, the last ah statement. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. So, so are those, there are those at the top of the struggle for power who are, who are probably most tempted, most inclined to trust in themselves and in their own current strength. When Assyria was sweeping across the known world and defeating any group of people in its path, it's easy to see why they might have been tempted to trust in their own strength. However, it is, it is foolish for any person or any group of people to think that they have the strength to stand up to God. And, and God gives them a warning in chapter 33, verse 10. <clears throat> Look at how God responds to that. He says, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. The nation of Assyria, but, but also every other nation who would come to power throughout history, would be confronted at one point or another with the fact that no matter how much power they held, they couldn't stand up to God. It wasn't more power than he possessed. And again, when we think about our own lives, our trust can very easily shift to our own power and strength. So in in our good health, we may trust that our health will not fail us. In our financial excess, we may trust that our money will never fail. In uh, in our occupational position, we, we, we may trust that we will always have a a position of influence. Uh, In political victory, we we may trust that our control will never fail. Basically, bet on yourself, right? That's the phrase that that we can hear at times, bet on yourself. Whatever limited strength and power we may momentarily have, there there is no guarantee that we're going to have it tomorrow or later this afternoon, for that matter. There's just no guarantee in that the ultimate result of trusting in ourselves will not be good, as, again, as we will see when we wrap this up here. So the question in all of this, and in, in, in these kind of five different woe-ah statements that God makes, the question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter if we're trusting in our pride or, or appearance or secrecy or others or ourselves? Why, why does that matter? Uh, and if this life is all that there is, you know, what we see here now, if this is all that there is, then I, it probably doesn't matter. It, it probably doesn't. If this physical realm is all that there is to reality, then, then it doesn't matter. 
if that's the case, if that this is all that there is, then we, we should trust in those things and we ought to be working very hard to improve our standing in all of those different areas. But that isn't our reality. That isn't, uh, th this life isn't all that there is. There is an unseen spiritual realm. There is an eternity after this life. All of history is moving toward that ultimate conclusion which God has ordained. There's going to come the time when Jesus returns to this earth in all his glory and in all his power and might, and he's going to set up his eternal kingdom here, fully visible for all to see once and for all. That, that time is coming, and when he sets up that kingdom, people are going to experience it in one of two ways. And that's the last two chapters this morning, 34 and 35. There's two ways to experience that kingdom which God will set up. Chapter 34 talks about judgment that is going to come upon all people who trusted in something other than God, all these other things that we've been talking about or other things that aren't mentioned. So their pride, their appearances, their secrecy, their alliances, their own strength, it's all going to come crashing down around them. It's going to become evident that, uh, that those things were terrible things in which to place ultimate trust. God's justice, his, his righteousness is going to be poured out upon sin. That, that is the message of chapter 34. And it, that chapter, it, it's kind of a tough one to read. It really is, chapter 34. It, it, it speaks of uh, the stench of corpses. Uh, it, it speaks of swords sated with blood, uh, smoke going up forever. You know, speaking candidly, it, it's a picture of God that I don't really enjoy thinking about, what we see in chapter 34. Now, now yes, this judgment is only poured out upon those who've rejected God and are facing the consequences of their own sin, but it's still difficult to read. It, uh, you know, for me, there, there's still many questions that can arise regarding God's love and his justice, how those two things work together can lead to some uneasy feelings within myself as I read that chapter. And we're not going to go overly in-depth uh, on that subject this morning, but, but if you find yourself with, with some of those same feelings or maybe asking a question like that, I would encourage you to spend some time pondering this question. This was a question I was thinking about over the past uh, couple weeks. Would I find any reason to love a God who was not just towards sin? Would I have any reason to love a God who is not just towards sin? I mean, as, as much as part of me wants to remove chapter 34 from my understanding of God, I don't think I'd have any reason to love a God like that. I don't think I would. I, I just don't think I could love a God who turned a blind eye towards sin or who didn't have the strength or the power to address sin and bring about restoration. I, I just don't think I could love a God like that. So although chapter uh, 34 is tough to read, it, it shows me that God's justice towards sin will one day be poured out. 
It will be poured out on that day. And if I'm attempting to trust in any of those things that we've discussed this morning, then I have good reason to fear that day because those things will all fail. They'll all fall short and fall away. But if my trust is in God, if my trust is in the work of Jesus upon the cross, then my experience on that day is not chapter 34. My experience on that day instead is chapter 35. And I love reading chapter 35. I mean, it, it talks about deserts blossoming and, and deaf ears being opened, um, everlasting joy. It, it, it's, it's very pleasant <laughs> reading chapter 35. You know, those who've been ransomed and redeemed, those who've been bought back from slavery, by Jesus' blood, they will reign with Jesus in his kingdom. It's not judgment that they will experience. It's, it's reigning. It's, it's redemption. It's, it's freedom. It's peace. But it only happens when we trust in him. It only happens when we trust in the salvation and forgiveness that only comes from him. That's, that's the only thing that won't fall short on that day when Christ returns and when judgment upon sin is finally and, and fully poured out, that trust in God. Now, real, I realize that, uh, you know, in light of all that I've said this morning, there, there can be maybe a pull or, uh, or a tension that we feel within ourselves. Um, I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we do indeed have a sin problem that there is this thing within us where we fall short of who God is, what he's called us to, that we deserve judgment upon our sin. And while we might be overjoyed to, to uh, hear that God provides the solution for us through Jesus Christ, there, there might still be part of us that, that is afraid to fully trust God and, and approach him because he is still the God of chapter 34. He is still the God who does justly respond to sin. Yes, he promises to redeem us by his son Jesus through our faith in him, but what if he doesn't? That, that can linger in our minds. What if he doesn't? What, what, if, what if in my case my sin is too great? Um, what if I've come too late? What if he just doesn't love me as much as he loves someone else? What if? And so I, I, want to, I want to end this morning by, by reading you a story that will hopefully remove any doubt within you regarding whether or not you can trust God when you come to him. Um, this is a, it's a fictional story. It's a parable told by Jesus. But it's a story that nonetheless represents the reality of God's love for us. So just listen as I, as I read this. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He was trusting in a lot of stuff in those few verses. Trusting in himself, trusting in his money, trusting in the person he hired himself out to. And they're all falling short, aren't they? But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Began to celebrate. Can we, can we trust God when we run to him in the midst of our brokenness and our failures? Well, this description of God's character is an emphatic yes. Yes, of course we can. And along with the words of this story, I also wanted to show you the, the kind of the famous Rembrandt picture uh, painting. There it is. And you can see that's on this left side here. The depiction of the father embracing uh, the son welcoming him, embracing him in his arms. I mean, when we, when we humble ourselves, when we come to God, when we place our trust in him, this is how we will be received here, according to that picture. Uh, if you have any fear this morning about trusting in God, if you have any fear about whether or not God has your best interest at heart or any fear about the depth of God's love for you, Allow this parable and, and this picture, this painting based on that parable to address that fear. Um, something I, that I, I think is, uh, is uh, just something great to know is that the, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the word trust, the noun form of that Hebrew word, it speaks of safety and it speaks of security that trust really is a reality of safety and security. And there is no, no safer, no more secure place that we can be than in the loving arms of the Heavenly Father. I mean, there's no more safe and secure place we can be. And so the question comes back to that, that very question we started with is, in whom do we trust? And whom do I trust? Do I trust in myself, my pride, all these other things? Or do I trust in God, knowing that this will be the welcome that I get when I run to him? In whom do I trust?
Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray and give thanks to God for who he is, that we can trust in him. Loving Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and when we're honest, we, we know we've tried to trust in all these other things. Just like the younger son in that parable, we've, we've, we've sought to trust in so many things. But God, I thank you that, that we can and, and so many have returned to you, have repented and come back and found you to be ready to not just welcome, but, but forgive and celebrate. God, I pray that, that you would deepen our trust in you, that uh, no matter what the situation looks like around us, whether it's like southern Judah with Assyria threatening, or whether it's a situation in our life where we just don't know what the solution is, would you help us to, to trust in you, to remember that, uh, that that trust in you will ultimately lead to being in your kingdom, safe and secure, and being there for all eternity. God, we thank you for the, uh, the forgiveness that you offer to us. We thank you that you redeem us and restore us and, uh, and raise us from the dead. God, may we, may we live each and every day in that trust, walking, walking with confidence, walking in security. God, we thank you that no matter what, our trust in you will be shown to be well-placed. We know it doesn't mean that our life will be smooth every step of the way, but we know that it means that we are in your hands and that we will be brought into your kingdom. God, we give you praise for that, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.